0: This program is made possible by the members and donors to the show. To support the work we do for as little as a buck a month, or to sign up as a member and get commercial-free versions of every episode, plus members-only bonus content, sign up at patreon.com slash or visit the contribute tab at BestOfLeft.com. And now, welcome to this episode of the award-winning Best of the Left podcast, in which we shall learn about the rise of the right from a domestic and international perspective. Our clips today come from the Good fight, speak out with Tim Wise, ideas from the CBC, the Trump cast, making contact, and this is hell.
1: A lot of people think that the system is so corrupt and is so guilty that there's no comparison to the guilt or corruption of somebody like Donald Trump, right? That the problem is just that the underlying pre-existing way that we do democracy in the United States is so far gone that we need a bomb thrower like Donald Trump to to shake things up. And that temptation is always going to be there. And I really wonder sort of about how we can change that. Do we need a radical institutional reform after Trump is out of office, a real coming together? Is that ever likely to happen? How do we make people less hostile to political elites, and to the institutions we have. Because if they remain as angry as they are, and honestly, in some ways, for good reason, they are angry, we'll surely always live with the danger of somebody like Trump coming back in.
2: Yeah, I mean, I think that there's sort of two angles to this. One is in terms of what his base would sort of be demanding of the system. What's surprising to me, I mean, I'm from Minnesota, which is, it's a solidly democratic state, but it inch closer to voting for Trump. It's got parts of it that are sort of like the Rust Belt, the Iron Range, the mining northeast, et cetera, where Trump performed very well. And you know, I think a lot of those people are not expecting him to deliver anything for them. They're just sort of sticking it to the establishment, which has failed to provide for them for the last three decades. And this is where the the point that you made about this being a legitimate concern, I think, is a very legitimate concern. Is that you know, the average sort of American worker is not getting a wage increase for decades. Uh, the middle class has not been riding the wave of globalization that a lot of you know, the developing world has, and also the rich in the United States. And I think that's the answer. I mean, I think that's really the answer: is that a lot of people are pretty happy with the establishment when this, when the system is providing some basic functions, like the idea that when you work hard, you will have a safe pension, you'll have a, you know, the dignity of of work that pays more each year after the next. And that there's sort of these things that are part and parcel of the American dream, no matter how much of a myth it was before, that I think a lot of people feel like they have lost. And this is where Make America Great Again is, I mean, frankly, a brilliant campaign slogan, because it is this sense of nostalgia for sort of the white working class that, you know, you showed up to the steel mill and you, you, you were never going to get, you know, the spotlight for it. You were never going to get praise for it, but you'd have a decent life. And I think... That's the real answer, is that the, the establishment has genuinely abandoned those people. They have not provided policies that cater to them. And I also think that the, the real tragedy of Trump is that he's not actually speaking to the problem that they're confronting, which is automation. And, and that's going to intensify significantly. We're going to have a real test case of whether politicians, you know, sort of the Trump 2.0s, can get the same mileage railing against robots and machines as they can against you know Muslims and Mexicans. <laughs> But that's going to be the next stage of politics, because that's the, the reality is that all of these manufacturing jobs are going to disappear as a result of computerization and robots. I mean, if automated cars and automated trucks take the road, that's a whole nother industry that's going to be decimated. You know, this isn't revolutionary. This is something where you can see it coming. It's not some sort of massive prediction. It's just it's a slow burn. And so my take on this is that you know the Democrats got a wake up call, just as the Republicans did but the republicans are making in my view a catastrophic long-term mistake in that they're doubling down on policies that created the inequality that's driving trumpism in the first place and it's very easy to see how in a system where there's no wage increases for decades for the average worker how you turn to scapegoating nationalism and the rise of an outsider so you know so i have rising. a question
1: about this because this is part of my story as well right so i have a book, which I finished after a couple months ago, which will be out early in 2018. And one of the arguments I'm making is that a structural driver of this populist rage is the stagnation of living standards from one generation to the next. One way in which I'm interested in your work is to look beyond the context of North America and Western Europe. And, And there the story becomes more complicated. You know, the Polish economy has increased sixfold since 1990 the wages of average people really have gone up, right? Whereas in the States, it's easy to say, you know, does the average American have a better life today than 25, 30 years ago? You know, not so clear. In some ways, yes. In other ways, no. In Poland, it's just clear that people have better lives today. The vast majority of Poles have better life today than they had 25 or 30 years ago. And yet you see the rise of a surprisingly similar set of populist attitudes and politicians. And so how do we explain that? Why is it that... When you look beyond the context of North America and Western Europe, where the stagnation story is not true, you also see these populists rising.
2: Well, I think that's where there's sort of this cultural nostalgia. I mean, I think in places like Poland and Hungary, that's where the xenophobic nationalism resonates even more strongly than the economic nationalism. So, you know, the the places that I've done a lot of work, places like Belarus and Thailand and Madagascar and Tunisia the economic story actually goes a pretty long way because they're not dealing with a massive influx of immigrants. There's a backlash against establishment politics that fails to deliver in places in Eastern Europe that actually rode the wave of globalization. You do see, you know, I mean, Victor Orban's, uh, you know, populism is much more rooted in this sort of cultural nostalgia that is, it's effectively white nationalism packaged as something a little bit more savory, but only vaguely packaged, you know, beyond that.
1: But if that resonates so much there, and you look at something like Trump, who has both the cultural nationalist and the economic nationalist element, isn't that a suggestion that perhaps the cultural nationalist element is more important in his appeal than his economic nationalist elements?
2: Well, I think it depends. I mean, I think it depends who you're talking to, right? I mean, I think some of the cultural nationalism would resonate extremely strongly with affluent people in Alabama, for example, right? But, But maybe not as much with, urban new yorkers but the economic nationalism with the taxi driver in new york might might resonate quite strongly i think the one-two punch that he brings is essential for a country as diverse culturally and economically as the united states whereas in a place like poland or hungary you have more of a homogenous society
1: right that's interesting so the idea is that in a place that's pretty homogeneous and that feels that homogeneity being threatened the cultural nationalism is sort of enough And that's because there's enough people who share in one culture for appeals to that to carry a real winning coalition. Whereas in the United States, there are certainly people like that who you can reach, but you're not going to get to a majority. In order to get to a majority, you have to add people on top of that who perhaps aren't completely averse to that cultural nationalism, but who are activated by the economic side.
2: Absolutely. And this is where, you know, the scariest moment to me of Trump's administration so far is not one that a lot of people would think of. And it's it's the speech he gave to Congress. Because I listened to that speech and I was like, this is how you package Trump that resonates with economic nationalism and cultural nationalism, but doesn't alienate the people who are alienated by Trump. Because the dirty secret here in Washington and around the sort of political elites in the United States is many people realize that what Trump is talking about is genuinely popular in some ways, right? The idea of scapegoating Muslims, the idea of jailing illegal immigrants, et cetera, even for minor crimes, those are genuinely popular things. It's an ugly truth, but I think it's true. So what you have to think about if you're sort of the Trump 2.0 is how do you say those things in the softer way, right? The way that doesn't get wrapped up with all of the crude misogyny, all of the, you know, we're going to ban Muslims outright, but sort of speaks in code, which is something, by the way, that United States politicians are very good at activate latent racism and bigotry in sort of coded words. This is sort of, you know, the George H.W. Bush ad about Willie Horton in 1988, right, with insinuating that Michael Dukakis was soft on crime because he was going to let this black killer out of jail. And it's not overt, but it's still extremely powerful. And so, you know, that speech that he gave to Congress wasn't particularly eloquent, but it packaged things in a way that didn't have the sort of rough edges of Trump. And that's where I was really terrified that he was going to get packaged by his advisors
1: and what you found scary is that it actually seemed to move the needle that people actually were responding to it quite positively
2: exactly I mean this is the thing is the two the two days of his administration where I think he's been happy because he's been applauded, have been that speech in bombing syria which which is why I am very worried because you know he he's a guy who wants praise, we're talking about democracy, and he's tweeted about crowds. 247 times, but about human rights once, and that was just to mock them. And then you have him embattled, you know, back up against the wall in domestic politics, and the happy moments of his presidency are the speech and the bombing Syria. And the worry I have is that the lesson he'll learn over time is to just listen to his advisors, which would make Trumpism actually much more sinister, or to lash out with military might in a way that receives praise and has the Fareed Zakarias of the world saying he just became president tonight.
3: For those who who don't follow
4: the white supremacist movement and the history of it in this country, you won't necessarily recognize the name Clark Martell. But it's not just that you were recruited into this movement and into the skinhead culture. You were recruited by pretty much the head guy. I mean, it's sort of like being recruited by the head of ISIS. And he's appealing to a lot of the same needs that I'm sure gang members appeal to when they bring people in or, or ISIS or whomever else. One of the things he, uh, in your book that was fascinating, I mean, he knew exactly what buttons to push because he came to you, he takes the joint out of your mouth, and then when he finds out your name, he starts talking about how, as an Italian, right, you're descended from this class of gladiator-type warriors in greatness, right? Which is, I mean, shit, you tell a 14-year-old who feels powerless that they come from greatness, that has got to be intoxicating.
5: Yeah. And and he really appealed. It didn't start out as hatred, Tim. It started out as this pride, like you should have pride in who you are. And I was proud of being Italian, but, and he really focused in on that until, you know, it went to the next level, which was, oh, you know, you're proud of that. Somebody wants to take that away from you and you should be careful of that. And then the next stage would come and he would say, well, the people that want to take that away, well, you know, you should eliminate them. And then it became, you know, Me against the world. It was really, you know, the end of hatred never came. We were in such miserable positions and hated our lives so much that we were really glad to take that and unload that on somebody else. So we didn't have to admit to ourselves that we were the ones that were fucked up.
4: One of the things that I noticed really early on in your book, you expressed within the first eight, nine pages that as a a kid, as a really young kid, you had a desire to be successful and powerful and famous. I think you talked about wanting to be like the star baseball player or something or a celebrity. And then at one point, when your mom takes you to Catholic school, you know, and sits you down with the nun and the nun says you're going to be president. And your mom was loving that. And you were sort of like just wanting to play ball on a team with real uniforms. But still, it probably got you thinking, right? And it got me thinking here we are in a country that to some extent has told white men And maybe white folks generally, but especially white men, that we really can do anything, be anything. And I would imagine that when white men who have been told that forever, for hundreds of years in this country, come up against frustration, which we all do from time to time, whether it's frustration with our economic situation or, you know, whatever it is, we don't feel like we're achieving what we're supposed to achieve. Boy, when you have been promised the world When someone has said to you, you're entitled to run this, like you are the king of the hill, and then you don't feel like that because your life is sort of sucking in a million ways, that has got to be incredibly difficult for certain people to cope.
5: It's almost like the more privilege you have and the more promise we give you, the harder the fall, you know? Right. Well, let's put it into context, right? We've got these people living in rural America, you know, in middle America, who've had, you know, successful farms and successful factories in their towns. And then when those factories left, either because of progress or because of whatever, we, whatever the reason is, suddenly it becomes that somebody has taken that away from us. Suddenly we're blaming immigrants. Suddenly we're blaming refugees. We're blaming all of these things that most of the time they're not to blame. We can blame g- corporate greed for a lot of those cases. Yet here we are on both sides polarized, killing each other. When really the people that are to blame are the ones who are pulling the strings, the ones who do have this control, which in most cases are white males. And, and you know, they're essentially playing a game of chess with us as expendable pawns who, you know, are they're happy to watch us kill each other. They're happy to watch kids in, in, uh, in the inner city, you know, murder each other. They're happy to, to, to see all these drugs and opioids all over the country killing people because, frankly, there's an endless supply of us. And they know that their business will not stop and their business, in fact, will grow because of the problems we have in this country. Well, that's the thing that's
4: fascinating about Trumpism, right? That everyone sort of runs around saying, oh, this is unprecedented. This is the most horrible thing. And I mean, you know, it is horrible and it's a more extreme iteration than maybe some people are used to. But the idea that this is new or the idea that it's a new thing for a rich white man to make political bank off of the idea that non-rich white people's pain is caused by Black and brown folks, like that's, that's not new. That's like Monday. The politics of prejudice works for people, especially when they're economically vulnerable. But here's the thing. So in Charlottesville for this huge Unite the Right rally, yeah, you had some of those folks, but you know, I looked at that crowd and what I didn't see in that crowd, at least not in a predominant way, I didn't see a bunch of out of work coal miners. I didn't see a bunch of guys that got laid off from the factories. But what I saw were a bunch of dudes look like frat boys marching around in khakis and white polo shirts or similar sort of look like they had come from a, from a fraternity party. A lot of them college kids. They didn't look like Clark Martell. They didn't look like those guys. And so I'm wondering, when you think about this, I want to know what are the differences you see between other than the aesthetic ones between the the white power folks you were associated with and the folks now and what do you think it means? Is this movement branching out into areas that it didn't even bother with before or you know, I mean what is what does it mean and and what does it say about how we need to respond?
5: Even 30 years ago, we recognized that our shaved heads and our swastika tattoos and our banners and all that stuff, it was scaring away the average uh, white racist in America because they were still pro-American. They saw us as outsiders, a fringe group, whatever. And we started this change that we that we now see today, and that we call the alt-right. We didn't call it the alt-right. We called it leaderless resistance. We said, throw out your hair, don't join a group, blend in, go to college, recruit on college campuses, take the message, make it a little bit more palatable so it's easier to swallow for you know the average American, uh, and uh, run for office, get a job in law enforcement. And here we are, 30 years later, and I'm you know. First week in November of last year, it was as if a bucket of gasoline was kicked over and ignited all the sparks that have been, you know, smoldering for over a century in our country, right, since day one. And it's emboldened them. They're so normalized as part of our, you know, political discussion. Uh, I never thought I'd see the day, even when I was in the movement, that, you know— David Duke would be on CNN, you know, nonstop on repeat. You know, we couldn't have imagined that. We wanted it to happen, and this has has come to fruition today. And I think that we have a perfect storm that, if we're not careful, could be really, really dangerous for America and, in fact, for the whole world, because, you know, frankly, this is a a trend we're seeing in every country happening right now. Uh, You know, ultra-nationalism is growing. Isolationism and nativism is is starting to become kind of the norm uh, among, you know, politicians. We're seeing open neo-Nazis being elected to office in places like Slovakia, coming really close in places like Austria. Uh, And it's troubling because we're so disconnected from each other. You know, hatred is born of ignorance. Fear is its father, and isolation is is its mother. And if we're so isolated from it and afraid to understand it, we never get to that point where we make a connection, where we can humanize other people. So we retreat back into our holes, back into our rural communities, back into our, you know, our privilege. And we say, well, that's just not like me. So I have to hate it. That's a really scary time we're going through right now, because never in my lifetime have I seen the prevalence of this normalization of white supremacy happening now that's not to say it, it wasn't existing we've never been in a post-racial society we have broken systems and until those things are fixed until you know these things that are in place that bolster this white supremacy that's happening i'm afraid we're never going to get out of it we can talk and talk and build as many bridges as we want but until people are treated fairly and have the same opportunities in this country it's just never going to go away
6: Let's get into to some of the the themes that you deal with in in on tyranny in the book. Um, you mentioned the great Jewish philologist Victor Klemperer, who who studied the way that the Nazis used language. They, they they subtly changed the meaning in an almost Orwellian sense, I guess. They they commandeered everything else, but first it was language. Language was
7: the sort of foot in the door, the narrow edge of the wedge. This is something that is extremely important and which we've lost track of. And in an odd way, the, the very atrocity of where the Nazi regime ends can draw our attention away from from how it begins. So, so often in discussions of authoritarianism, people will say, but look, we don't have death camps killing millions of Jews, therefore everything's okay. And the real question is, what were the necessary conditions to get from 1933 to 1941 or 1942, when when the Holocaust um, gets gets underway, so in, in in these lessons in the book, the ones about language or the ones about public symbolism, I'm I'm thinking about Germany in 1933, and I'm thinking about one of the things that historians of of Nazi Germany tend to agree about, which is that what was permissible in public spaces, and then what was acceptable or what was normalized in political language open people's imagination for what was possible in politics. And so that then is a necessary condition which happens early. And it's something that one has to try to arrest, try to stop early if at all possible, or at least notice. So in the public signs, for example, after Mr. Trump was elected, swastikas just became a lot more common mm. in the U.S. In rural New England, in in urban New York, more people were putting up more swastikas. On the other hand, more organizations were formed to get up early in the morning and paint over those swastikas, which is something that I think you have to do. And that's a lesson that we learned from 33. With language, there's not a whole lot that one can do to, to change the way Mr. Trump talks, but one can be aware that there are certain things that he does which have consequences. Part of it is style. You know, the, the way that he, that he presents himself um, as the voice of the people, which is something that Hitler actually said, you know, the idea that the, the speaker is the voice of the people and therefore all the laws and institutions in between are relevant, the, 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 the fascist directly represents the people. Some of it are some of the things he says, like the way he, he Clem, this is an example from Klemperer where Trump will talk about the people, but what he means by the people is some, is some part of the population, not all the citizens. He clearly means some group against which, you know, there one is defining some some enemies. Those people are not really the people, even though they're technically the citizens. Um these these are examples of the kinds of things one has to be aware of. And in general, one has to be aware that the language matters. So one, one trap that people can fall into is that if Mr. Trump is vulgar or if Mr. Trump uses certain phrases, then people try to be vulgar themselves or they try to turn those phrases around, and that that's a sort of trap. It's very important to to call him on what he does, both both, you know, the vulgarities, um the fascism, um the oversimplifications and the outright lies, which are almost countless. It's important to keep track of all that. But it's also important very important for people to be mindful about how they use language themselves because that's the only that, that's one form of self-defense how we use the language.
6: One of the most chilling things that you you say in the book actually is and I'm quoting you here most of the power of authoritarianism is freely
7: given. What do you mean by freely given? Well, that's that, that's that might be chilling as a description of us but it's also or should be encouraging as a description for the possibilities of political action in the early stages of authoritarian regime change, which is where the United States is right now. So what, what what's meant is that it has, a, it has a temporal dimension, a psychological dimension, political dimension. Usually authoritarian regime changes take place over a fair bit of time. Again, Germany is a good example. Hitler doesn't consolidate power completely in Germany. Until well into the 1930s, and the control of the parliamentary system, um, you know, takes roughly takes roughly a year. The elimination of political rivals, roughly a year. And so, if, if you're an authoritarian that you're trying to change the regime, the trick is to immobilize people for enough time for you to make these basic changes. So, if you, if you're a citizen, the trick is to recognize that something is afoot. And not to obey in advance, to recognize that what's happening now is different from other things that that you've experienced before in, in your life and not to give your consent. And so by consent, what we mean here is something like crossing the street away from people who you think might be suspect or looking away from that swastika on the wall instead of painting it over. Or adapting the way that you talk to make it sound more like the speech of the authorities. These are all ways of expressing consent. And again, this is something that we think we understand about 1933. So you you, you can't just kind of go along and normalize with little steps, which is what people generally do. That's what people generally do. And that's why the, the power of authoritarians is freely given, especially at the beginning. You have to stop yourself at the beginning. That's the time dimension. And you have to, make this, you have, to have a psychological breakthrough where you say, look, this is not normal. I'm going to behave in a different way. The thing is, if you do that, then you have a chance of doing other things later on. And the political dimension of this is that if you don't get out front of authoritarian regime changes, then they're over before you know it, which is why it's so very important that a march happened in the US the day after the inauguration. It's so very important that the legal challenges began in the days and weeks after the inauguration. It's so very important that all kinds of small groups began to act right away. Not that Americans have done such a great job, but it's very important that some Something happened in the beginning.
6: We live in very confusing times, and we've done shows here on American fascism. Uh, we, we did a show on post-truth and what that means. And I, I, I want to call now on your historical knowledge again on what happened Yea, those many years ago, when when all of this seemed to be happening once before, I mean, the new media was very important in the, in the expansion of, of fascist ideas. Radio, I hate to say it, confess was a, it was a very important factor in what was going on, and you know there was talk about uh, truth, what truth was, and and I, I I
7: wonder if you can basically I guess draw parallels once again between then and now. Well, let me try to draw two. Um, The first is the history of communications technology, which you quite rightly say is very interesting. So the the very technologies that we find pacifying and civilized now, like print and like radio, have a terrifying history. When the printing press was invented, it, it gave rise to 150 years of religious war. I mean, there are other reasons for it, but the fact that people could carry out these polemics over this new medium was one reason why um, differences suddenly clarified, and and, and heresies suddenly seemed objectionable, and armies armies went to war. You know, we associate the the book with the Enlightenment, but that's that's after you know that's after a couple of centuries of of religious war. Likewise, as you say, with radio. Where we're talking over the radio. Listening to the radio is a luxury now. It's one of these things that we do when we want to calm down and collect our thoughts. But in the 20s and 30s, precisely, it was a, it was a mass medium which was used to get people out on the streets. It was used to get people to think the same things at the same time. That was, that was the idea that the Nazis had, which brings us to the internet. So the internet comes around that, of course, people say, this new communications technology is going to you know give us access to information. It's going to make us all equal. It's going to be passive and the opposite's the case, roughly speaking. Politically, the opposite is the case. Um, and I, I would just say that historically speaking, that's not surprising. We should expect that a new communications technology is going to have a period of hopefully not centuries, but decades, but definitely decades where it's going to be fundamentally disruptive. Not disruptive in the like cutesy Silicon Valley way, but disruptive in the sense of breaking the way that politics and society had 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 worked. It's going to take some time for us to recover, I think, from the damage that the internet has done to our ability to communicate normal ideas politically, and things will never be exactly the same. But that it's a huge disruption is not is not surprising. The, the question is what we is what we do now, which is the second parallel: the truth. It's really, you're very much on target, I think, when you suggest that the, the traditional or the 20th century tyrannies had a specific attitude about truth. Fascism said, look, don't attend to the facts of everyday life. The real truth is the spiritual bond of the nation or the mythical connection of the nation and the leader. Lenin, the Bolsheviks, said, look, it's not so much the actual facts that matter. What really matters is the deeper truth that in the future, there's going to be the socialist utopia. And if we have to bend the truth or even completely destroy the truth to get there, that's worth it because the world that we're in now is fragmented and corrupt and, and fundamentally miserable. But there's a better world out there, and, and that's the deep truth. So in the 21st century, we see this again, but without the promise of utopia. So it's rare that people on the far right or the far left are promising perfect unity with the people or um, a, a class utopia in the future. But what you do get is an attack on the truth, which usually takes the form more like, I don't know, and you don't know, and no one really knows, and maybe there isn't really truth. And this, this is the ideological basis, or even the practical basis, of a new kind of authoritarianism, where the way you handle things is that you get control of media, and you spread total doubt about everything. And once everyone kind of shrugs their shoulders cynically, you govern by spectacle, and this is this is this already happened in russia, and it's it's what Mr. Trump is very clearly trying to do in the United States. His main domestic policy is the demolition of truth. he lies all the time ceaselessly, I mean to the point where it's not it's clearly not he's not making mistakes. this is clearly programmatic, and that's step one, and step two is he then says, "Oh well." It's not me, it's the journalists who are lying. And then he says fake news, fake news, fake news, fake news over and over and over again until it penetrates people's skulls and they start applying it to the journalists as well. And then step three, nobody believes anyone anymore. There, aren't, there are no authorities, there are no facts left. And, and as that happens, your own reality starts to shift. So something like that is the pattern of 21st century authoritarianism. And it definitely has to do with the very conscious demolition of factuality. As an historian, you know that, that that
6: hindsight is always twenty twenty, and that that's a sort of that's a very valid explanation for how Trump came to power. But people are still scratching their head and wondering how it happened. I mean, what went on? I'm, I'm fascinated that you point out that that somebody who did get it, who understood in advance, were were, were people in Ukraine and journalists in Ukraine, sort of said, "Yep, Trump's going to win that election."
7: Yeah, I mean, I, I had there was kind of a, a clear moment where a, a friend of mine who was Ukrainian journalist. I helped her get to to Ohio and within 36 hours of landing in the place she'd understood fundamental things which Americans somehow couldn't see and she you know she called the election she called the state she called the election and she was right when most of us were wrong and in in, in during 2016 Russians and Ukrainians generally looked at Trump and said we get the logic of this they had seen this kind of thing before the use of technology, you know, the out of the box rhetoric, um, the confusion of spectacle with reality, um, the possibilities that opened before you when you were willing to lie all the time about everything and break all the rules. The way that people find that refreshing for a moment and before they know it, they're, they're drawn in and trapped. But the reference to Russia and Ukraine reveals something else about how Mr. Trump was possible, which I wouldn't want to overlook, which is structural economic inequality. Uh, Russia and Ukraine, um, especially Russia, are places with stupefying economic inequality. And in that situation... One way that you govern is like this. You govern with spectacle, you govern with you govern by being people's promises of a of a return to a better past. And you get support from people who think that they're at a dead end. As Mr. Trump put it when he announced his his candidacy. You know, he said the American dream is dead. Um, and that got him a lot of support from people who really have been doing very badly in the U.S. since about the 1980s. Not that he had any—he didn't have any policy responses—but he acknowledged that there was that there was a big problem. And if it hadn't been for that acknowledgement, I don't think that he he would have won. And if it hadn't been for the inequality, I don't think he would have had a chance. <laughs>
0: This show runs on recurring donations from listeners just like you. More specifically, listeners like Terry T. and Alexander T., no relation... Uh, They were already members, but they both made the jump over to Patreon recently, both going above and beyond, and signing up as professional protester-level members, so thanks to them for that, and to everyone who's been making the switch. In the long run, my goal is to get all members using Patreon, as it will really simplify my life. But for those of you who haven't signed up at all yet, remember that members get access to a special members podcast feed they use in place of the regular show feed, because it includes ad-free versions of every episode, plus members-only bundles bonus content all in one place. Our most recent members bonus episode was a meditation on fear, tyranny, guns, self-governance and why we can't have nice things. So you're not going to want to miss that. Uh, members get at least 2 of these bonus episodes each month, but we have set a goal of 750 patrons and that includes anyone who donates even a dollar or more. And when we get there, we will double our members content to weekly. So we're about halfway there. So every new member and every existing member who makes the switch gets us closer to that goal. So whether you can only chip in a buck or 20, we really appreciate any support you can give, so think about signing up. Find us at Patreon.com/slash Best of the Left, or visit the contribute tab at BestoftheLeft.com to get started. Thanks in advance for your support.
4: I have to ask you about the German election. It was it was very alarming and upsetting to people that the alternative for Germany, the the right-wing populist party, when we talk about a right-wing populist party in Germany that, that has references that are unmistakable, got 13% of the vote, I believe, which was considered very high by by historical standards. What did that mean? I mean, on the one hand, that's awful. On the other hand, 13% doesn't seem to get
1: you anywhere, and it's
4: nowhere near get, get, getting them anywhere near power.
1: It doesn't get them near power, but it is a fundamental break with Germany's post-war history. Except In the very early years of the Federal Republic, in the first post-war years, you've never had a far-right populist party or far-right party at all in the German Bundestag. Um, You have a 5% threshold, and uh, the most that a far-right party got is 6% in, I think, 1953. And since then, they've always been below 5%. Now they're over twice as many votes, And this is a party, by the way, that is much more radical than somebody like Donald Trump in the views of immigration and minorities. It's a party that says explicitly there's no place for Islam in Germany. It's a party that says, some of whose members have said, that they desire a 180-degree turn in our understanding of German history and the Second World War. It's a party whose leader said just a few weeks ago, using a Nazi term and sorgen that if they won the election, they would dispose of Social democratic politician of Turkish roots in Anatolia. It's a very extreme party. And so the fact that they have such a high share of the vote in a country that has a uh, history that it does is deeply disturbing to me. Now, practically, it's true that they can't form a government, but they can do two things. The first is to dominate the public debate, as indeed they have over the last years, and thereby pull the whole political discourse to the right. And it's already far to the right to the United States on issues of immigration and national identity. And the second thing they can do is to render the political system more and more dysfunctional. Germany has a system of proportional representation. So basically, if you get about 10% of the vote, you have about 10% of the people in the Bundestag. It used to be that at most elections, the big party of the center-left and the small party of the center-left together could form a majority. And then they would become unpopular, the government ran out of steam. Some people would shift to the moderate right and then the big party of the center-right and the small party of the center-right could form a government instead. And that was really good because it meant that you had alteration in government. It meant that there was a way of throwing the bums out without going to be extremes. Now you have a big far-left populist party that isn't in coalition with anybody else ever and a big far-right populist party that isn't in coalition with anybody else ever. And the result of that is that voters don't know who they're going to get. There's always going to be some weird combination of the establishment parties. And that means that the first populist claim, which is that all the establishment is the same anyway, starts to be true, even if it wasn't. And the second effect of it is that it's impossible to throw the government out. If you say, you know what, Angela Merkel, by the time of next election, if she stands again, is going to have been in power for 16 years. I want to get rid of Angela Merkel. The only sure way to do that is to vote for the extremes. And so I think we are likely to keep rising in the polls.
2: First, we go to Athens, where the Greek rapper Pavlos Fissas was killed by a man who claims affiliation with the far-right Golden Dawn Party. Every year, people come together to honor Fissas' memory and call for justice from the courts, and for accountability from the political party whose principles the killer embraces. Contributors
8: Alyssa Moxley and Nikki Seth Smith produced this update on the investigation into Fissas' murder. The sun is setting on a crippling 100-degree day in Piraeus, Greece. Hundreds of people are gathering to remember the anti-fascist rapper Killer P, a.k.a. Pavlos Visas. He was murdered on the street, which now bears his name. A memorial stone carved with his portrait shows him rapping into his microphone. People have left offerings. Flowers, a can of beer, three cigarettes and a plate of food from the Free Anarchist kitchen store. It's his music being played. It's September 17th. Four years ago today, Fissas was searching for somewhere to watch a soccer game with two of his friends. He didn't know that the cafe they chose was affiliated with members of the Golden Dawn, a neo-Nazi political party. What happened that night shocked the country. As Fissas and his friends left the cafe, a large group of men attacked them, Reports put them at 30 to 40 attackers. Fissas was stabbed to death. Members of the Golden Dawn had been accused for years of perpetrating violent attacks, including murder. These alleged crimes had mostly targeted immigrants, such as the 2012 attacks on Egyptian fishermen in their home in Paramah, and the murder of Pakistani national Jezad Lukman in January of 2013. Despite these accusations, the party had sat in Greek Parliament since 2012, with apparent impunity. While members had been prosecuted as individuals, the party itself had escaped legal action, although it clearly has a hierarchical, quasi-military structure. The murder of Fissas was the tipping point that set the investigation of the Golden Dawn in motion. Some say this was in part because Fissas was an ethnic Greek. His mother, Magda Fissas, spoke on the Greek radio. She believes that the party planned her son's murder. At first it was reported as a soccer fight turned violent. She thinks this cover-up would have been believed if Fissas had not stayed in a public place.
9: We owe it to Pavlos. Unlike the others whom he told to leave, and they did and hid in the side streets, if Pavlos had also done that... The crime would have taken place in a side street and today they'd be describing it as a settling of scores and no one would know what had happened. So he stayed on a well-lit main road with plenty of people on it and traffic. The murderer went there
8: on orders and his intent was clearly to stab him. His murder has led to the biggest Nazi trial in Europe since the Second World War, which is still ongoing. Sixty-nine Golden Dawn party members are under investigation, including the leader, Nikolaos Michaloliakos, on charges of running a criminal organisation. The man accused of stabbing Fises, Yorgos Rupakias, has admitted to being a Golden Dawn member. He is also on record confessing the murder to a judge. Michaloliakos has stated that his party assumes political responsibility, but denies criminal liability or any involvement in planning the killing. The prosecution is now trying to prove that high-ranking officials ordered the murder. This is part of a wider investigation into how the Golden Dawn is organised. Evidence is being gathered around its military-style operation, linking the crimes committed by its members to the leadership, and Michal himself, who members have described as the Führer. Meanwhile, the Golden Dawn still sits in the Greek Parliament, with 16 MPs. All are on trial for various crimes. Costas Papiano was the Secretary-General for Human Rights in the Ministry of Justice when the trial began. He is now the coordinator of Golden Dawn Watch, an initiative set up to monitor the trial. Papiano explains that it was not only the fact that Fissas was Greek that caused him to become such a martyr figure.
10: He was an artist and also a working-class hero. He worked in a labour neighbourhood. That's why it was such a shock, especially for Piraeus and the neighbourhoods there, but, but not only because... It was not one of the typical, let's say, people that might be endangered by Golden Dawn. So it, it gave a shock to Greek society that tomorrow it may be your son or your daughter.
8: The trial has been running now for more than two years, with accusations that run to the very heart of Greek society, implicating the police themselves. Witnesses have testified that at least four police officers were present while Fissas was being murdered. They describe the cops standing by and watching. A police officer has also testified that when they made the arrest, the alleged murderer was strangely relaxed and said to them, I'm one of you, I'm Golden Dawn. Papiano says the struggle against fascism in Greece must be fought on many different fronts.
10: I think it is very important that there is this trial. I am very optimistic of the, or not very, but I am optimistic about the verdict. At the same time, we still need to be very aware of the danger and the fact that One way of facing the neo-Nazi threat is the institutional way and the other one is the political way that has to do with the collective and massive answer to the Nazi threat, which is in the neighbourhood, in the workplaces, at schools, at universities, etc.
8: They are not only embedded in Greek society. The Golden Dawn now have offices around the world and are a source of inspiration in Europe and the U.S., for extreme right-wing groups. Papiano mentions the white separatist leader, Matthew Heimbach.
10: We have to face the challenges of the present and the future. And, of course, these challenges have also got to do with the international environment, which is very pro-right friendly. The far right is gaining all over Europe, all over the very important states. We also had this unbelievable explicit saying by one of the American prominent figures of the far right Movement saying that Golden Dawn is one of our uh, ideals, let's say. We are following the activities of Golden Dawn and and they are a good example to us, which shows that far right is an imminent danger in different places internationally.
8: The annual protests marking FISA's death keep up the pressure around the trial. In mid-September, thousands of people came together across the country to honour Fissas and as a show of force against fascist influence in Greek institutions. In central Athens, around 2,000 protesters marched to the offices of the Golden Dawn to demand their closure. Speakers drew parallels with Heather Heyer, who died in August during the far-right rally in Charlottesville, Virginia. The Pakistani community of Greece sang to remember those from their own community, who they believe were victims of the Golden Dawn. At the protest around the memorial stone, a university student, who preferred to remain anonymous, said public anger hasn't faded.
1: Now, every year, we demonstrate uh, against the Golden Dawn in order to remember this uh, assassination. We say that the Golden Dawn should be illegal, and the judgment should uh, find them guilty. We connect this battle against Dawn with the anti fascist movement in the uh, United States. Use used his songs in order to convince people to fight the fascist. So, yeah, it was a very important uh, a member of the anti fascist movement. So, this is the reason they killed him, of course.
8: This song Zoria is especially powerful, as he seems to predict his own death. It has now become an anthem for the anti-fascist struggle in Greece.
2: On such a day it is fine to die beautifully and standing in public view. My name is Pavlos Fissas from Vireos. Greek, whatever that might mean. Not a flat. Not an heir to the
3: black shirts.
8: The Golden Dawn Party was registered in 1993, but their roots extend back into Greek history, drawing inspiration from the country's Nazi collaborators during the Second World War and the military dictatorship of 1967
1: to 1974.
8: That's the leader of the Golden Dawn, Nikolaos Michaloliakos, delivering his victory speech after being voted into parliament for the first time in 2012. He said he was proud of all those black shirts out in the villages holding Greek flags. We are patriots, he said. Those who betray this country... This motherland should now start to be afraid. Outside, party members marched and shouted, Greece is for Greeks. Get out, foreigners. Now that the party is on trial, they are less present on the streets and less vocal. However, attacks still happen. Last January, a Golden Dawn MP, along with dozens of members, Stormed a school planning to start teaching refugee children, punching and threatening teachers and parents. Those commemorating Fissas' death understand the importance of community action. After the street rallies, Fissas' family brought together a lineup of anti fascist bands under the headline, How Can We Live With Them? The concert was held in Piraeus Port, where Fissas often picked up jobs as a dock worker. One of his old friends and musical collaborators was there. He asked not to be named, and made clear that those associated with the anti-fascist music scene still had to watch their backs.
6: So uh, Pavlos was uh, a true artist, uh, was a true and poor artist. This poverty was uh, a problem to make music because to make music, it costs. So Pavlos was a true underground, was the real underground under the under, uh, underground. I don't think that Pavlos would have inspired anybody if he wasn't dead. However, he was a very good lyricist and a very good rapper. Greece always waits uh, somebody to die to inspire another one. This is a, a cultural phenomenon of, of Greece.
8: Around 10 p.m., skirmishes break out between the riot police and a group of around 40 or 50 people. They're wearing black and sporting masks, gear associated with the anarchist black block. Molotov cocktails are thrown at the police line. The riot police respond with tear gas. The air is thick with smoke, but the concert continues. Every year, the anniversary protests have been followed by street rioting. Anarchists engage in fights with the police, who they believe are compromised by fascist influence, and responsible, in part, for Fissas' death. People in the anti-fascist movement have different ideas about what Fissas himself would have made of the street fighting, but by now his legacy has surpassed his message and the music he made during his lifetime. For many, justice for Pavlos Fissas means something far larger. Justice for Greece.
1: In this podcast, I talk a lot about whether Donald Trump is a threat to democracy in the United States. But there's also another big worry I have the way in which Trump is already boosting authoritarian populists and straight out dictators all across the world. Just take a snapshot of what's been happening around the world in the last weeks. In Russia, Vladimir Putin has arrested thousands of protesters. In Hungary, Viktor Orban is preparing to close down Central European University a wonderful institution in Budapest. In Egypt, a huge number of opponents of General Al-Sisi's dictatorships are routinely arrested, tortured, or even killed. In India, Narendra Modi has appointed a fundamentalist monk to be the chief minister of Uttar Pradesh, the country's biggest state. And strongman leaders are also moving to constrict the space of freedom in Poland and the Philippines, in Croatia, and in Thailand. Now, let me be clear, Trump is not personally Behind these developments, but he is enabling them in two big ways. First, he's very friendly with a lot of his leaders. Putin was the only statesman for which Donald Trump had consistent praise throughout the campaign. He has spoken very warmly of Viktor Orban and Narendra Modi. And when General al Sisi came to Washington recently, Trump told the press, We agree on so many things. I just want to let everybody know, in case there was any doubt, that we are very much behind President El Sisi. He's done a fantastic job. And second, Trump is not fighting for the basic rights of citizens in those countries. Under President Obama, leaders in places like Hungary knew that they would at least have to pay a small price for doing something as radical as closing down an American university. Under President Trump, they're rightly getting the impression that America might cheer them on. And so one of the big prices that the world is paying for Donald Trump is already in evidence. The enemies of liberal democracy don't feel checked by the United States. In many ways, they feel encouraged.
3: Just guests warned us about the rise of the right in Europe. They told us it would happen if Europe continues with their economic policies. Well, it turns out they were correct. Here to help us understand the rise of Europe's far right and why it happened, Liz Fiquette is author of Europe's Fault Lines, Racism and the Rise of the Right. Welcome to This Is Hell, Liz.
9: Thank you. Thank you for inviting me
3: on the program. Liz is director of the Institute of Race Relations. You can find out more about that organization by going to IRR.org.uk. She has worked there for over 30 years. She heads its European research program and is advisory editor. To its journal, Race and Class. Now, Liz, the first time we had the former finance minister of Greece, Yanis Varoufakis, on our show was almost three years exactly to the day, in January of 2015. Yanis feared that there would be a rise of the far right three years ago. How much has the far right advanced in Europe in the last three years?
9: That's a question that needs breaking down, because I think I would understand the far right as different from the extreme right and the anti-immigration movements. We've had new formations of extreme right parties developing really since the 1990s. So we've got the old far right parties, like the Front National in uh, France, but we've got sort of anti-immigration movements, which come from a sort of slightly different place. They're not sort of neo-Nazis. The far right parties, i would say um differentiate differentiate themselves from those extreme right electoral parties in the sense that they're they're quite anti establishment they're quite anti the election process so paradoxically as these extreme right and anti immigration parties have moved into government, the far right as an extra parliamentary force has increased in its influence over the last three years i would that suggests that that is um, a right-breaking of, of that particular progression.
3: The most recent time, Giannis, was on our show, he this is back in November, he mentioned that austerity is what leads to the rise of the right. He pointed out that the post-World War I German right didn't rise during reparations imposed by the Allies, allies that led to massive inflation, unemployment, and economic decline. But austerity, as it wasn't until austerity pro- uh, policies were put in place, That the right rose to power. How much does austerity fuel the far right? And I'm sorry about using the term far right. And I know that we should be a little bit more careful in the way that we're saying this. But considering Giannis' home country of Greece is now imposing even more new austerity policy measures. To what degree do you think that increases the fortunes of the far right in Greece?
9: Well, I mean, in Greece, you have a situation, Golden Dawn is a far-right party. It's not one of these um, new formations. It is a far-right party that did extremely well in the electoral process, despite actually being, you know, openly advocating violence. So I completely understand where uh, Varoufakis was coming from on that point. I think I would see it as slightly different because I would agree that austerity has been um an enabler definitely an enabler of the far right but i would actually say that there are other forces as well there are legacies of racism and authoritarianism in our european countries um we we, uk i come from the uk we're a former colonial power um That is a factor in the rise of our um, far-right parties. They are extremely nationalist. They think that we should, uh, you know, it's a good idea. The empire was wonderful and we should sort of go back and ruling the world and telling everybody what to do if if we ever, ever actually stop, if you see what I mean. So, yes, I think austerity is breaking the bonds of society. But I also think we need to be careful because not everybody who is poor and has been affected and impacted by austerity is choosing to vote for far-right anti-extreme parties. You have equally in Europe some really positive things happening in terms of new social movements, progressive parties. Um, We've seen the rise of Jeremy Corbyn in the UK. So there's also an, an element where where people who are directly impacted by austerity are choosing progressive solutions, but of course austerity is causing heaps of misery. We've had the biggest spending cuts in Britain since you know after the Second World War, so I mean, since the 1930s, in fact. So you know you can't sort of downplay that, can you?
3: No, you can't. And uh, this just makes me think: how much do Conservative economic policies lead to conservative social beliefs, social understandings? Do conservative economic policies create social conservatism?
9: Well, (laughs) it's a really strange situation, and I'm sure it's not so different from the US because the prevailing ideology um, within the Let's say the uh, more mainstream conservative p- tradition in Europe is neoliberalism. Neoliberalism is quite in favour of the global economy and the global market. Embraces all those things, and very, very superficially, it embraces multiculturalism um, because you know, sort of, it, you know, a global globalisation loves to sort of, you know, present itself as, you know, uh, progressive on women's rights, even on gay rights, on uh, on on minority rights. So in fact, what we're seeing, I think, in Europe is a split within conservatism. You're split between the global capitalist, if you like, and the national capitalist. So what we're seeing is the reemergence Something that never went away of these extreme socially conservative and Christian democratic parties, which were always on the fringe of embracing very extreme right and authoritarian solutions. If you look at Greece and Spain and Italy and all those countries, the mainstream conservative parties quite often evolved from the pre-fascist parties. You know, maybe they call themselves post fascist So what we are seeing, exactly what you're saying, is within that... um, contest within the conservative forces as to who has ascendancy, within that contest between the globalists and the nationalists. The nationalists are coming to before, and they're saying we want more patriotism, we want more authoritarianism, we want these sort of up-and-see minorities to either assimilate or shut up, we're not going to have cultural diversity, a woman's places in the home, all that stuff. So the, the globalists are faced with a real challenge. They're a real challenge. And one of the things that I argue in the book is that I think that rather than seeing this as, as just a sort of battle between these two forces, that we have to look at the way this is going to resolve itself. And what I perceive is happening is it is resolving itself by the globalists actually realizing that they have to package neoliberalism up in a more patriotic and authoritarian wrapper.
7: We've just
0: heard clips today, starting with The Good Fight, speaking with Brian Klass about what circumstances can make Trumpism enticing. Tim Wise on his show Speak Out talked with former white supremacist Christian Piccolini about what draws people toward a life of hate. Timothy Snyder spoke on ideas from the CBC about the anatomy of tyranny, the Trump cast looked into what happened last year in the German election, making contact dove into the rise of the Golden Dawn Party in Greece, the good fight highlighted the ways in which the U.S. is no longer discouraging authoritarians around the world and that we are in fact encouraging them, and finally, we just heard Liz Feket on This Is Hell explaining the economic factors that have predictably paved the way for the rise of the right in Europe. As always, you can find links to each of these segments in the show notes for easy reference and sharing. And now, we'll hear from you.
11: Hello, uh, this is Z from FitzRose, New York. I just listened to your episode on Trump's budget, and it got me kind of thinking, it's the United States, I know people who saying this, but I really do not believe we can understate this either. The United States presently is at a crossroads. It is in a lot more trouble than we like to think about. The opioid addiction, the economic depression, which is very evident in just about every small and not-so-small communities for post-to-post. The environmental catastrophe, the problems of government working for and by uh, the people, all of these things and probably a dozen others that are now present a terrifying specter for the future. And the leadership is battling and fighting amongst itself old battles, which have nothing to do with really building a better future for not only us, but those who came before us and those who will come after So this got me thinking. Millennials are in a terrifying position right now. We have not been raised take power. We have not been raised to be in power in a way that would redefine our future. Instead, we have been raised to be what Chris Hedges has called many times, system managers. To basically maintain the status quo. Capitalism is a given. It's not to be challenged. It is to be teamed. And it is to prevail in the future is what we have been told. And many of us are uncomfortable with the idea that we see capitalism. We have not been put in the position to completely redefine our society. And this is the challenge of the age. Donald Trump is telling the millennials that we have to redefine our entire Desire. And we cannot do it in the same manner in which our parents did, in which our grandparents did, and which, well, I can't say our great grandparents because there is a lot of radicalism in that. But it presents us with a tremendous opportunity. And for many of us, this opportunity leads directly to the Democratic Party. But most of us, and I do mean most millennials, know the Democratic Party has no real solution and will prevent no real solution. What do we do then? We need to read up on the radicals of the late 1800s and of the early 1900s. Not necessarily to do as they did, but to learn from what they did. That was uh, a, an incredible show of people who did work. I look forward to more. 啊
0: thanks for listening, everyone. Thanks to the volunteers who helped gather clips to make this show possible. Thanks to Amanda Hoffman for all of her work on our social media outlets and activism segments, and thanks to all those who called into the voicemail line. If you'd like to leave a comment or question of your own to be played on the show, simply record a message at 202-999-3991. First of all, thanks to V for his comments that we just heard. Uh, It it was almost as though he was responding to today's episode, uh, but, uh, you know, obviously he wasn't. Very fitting, nonetheless. Uh, so a a great addition that just happened uh, very coincidentally. Secondly, on on today's topic, I I just want to mention that today's episode was actually suggested by a listener, uh, which I thought was an excellent suggestion. Please keep those coming in. Uh, You know, I've been looking for topics like this that span multiple topics. And uh, I've sort of told this story, but not in years, I don't think. When I first started the show... I had this very clear vision of of how each individual episode could have a clearly delineated topic that it focuses on. And for years, it, it was really easy for me to just do, you know, a show on economics, a show on racism, a show on feminism, a show on, you know, whatever. Go down the foreign policy, you know, back in the Bush years, lots to talk about the wars going on. and And so each one of them was like very clearly delineated. And it made perfect sense to me. And later, uh, I came to understand the incredible importance of finding the intersections of these topics and understanding how they all fit together. And once I had that realization, I I was really sort of frustrated at the restrictive nature of the style, the format of the show that I had built, and and I wasn't quite sure how to break out of that. I mean, it's it's not just the show itself, but it's like the workflow to create the show was built on these uh, clearly delineated topics and so i you know hopefully i'm getting better at creating more nuanced episodes and and diving into these topics that allow for these intersections you know not uh, we're not just dealing with primary colors now we're able to blend the the you know the blues and the yellows and come up with green and and have green be a topic so I think there are multiple reasons for that. I think maybe I'm getting a little bit better at it, uh, but also many sources that I use for the show are getting better at recognizing those things. And so I, I think that the the conversation is developing uh, across the board and my ear is developing a little bit. So I'm, I'm more able to find those sources that are doing a good job of it and, and sort of hone in on that. So all of that is just to say, thanks very much. I Unfortunately, the, Suggestion for today's episode came in so long ago, weeks or months ago, that I ju- I don't even remember how it came in. I don't know if it was a voicemail or email or, or whatever, so I don't have the person's name, but I'm sure they know who they are. And uh, thanks to them for chiming in, and I encourage all of you to keep ideas like this coming in. It keeps the show fresh and interesting and exploring new aspects of the world. Secondly... Just a quick follow-up to uh, the, the previous episode's homework. Uh, you may recall we had a couple of voicemails in there. One was about Israel and the danger of the idea of a one-state solution in Israel and basically advocating for a two-state solution. And my and then and the second voicemail was about um, conservatives living near the. US-mexico border and how justified they felt. In their fear of living in that area and, uh, and using that as the reason why they need giant guns with them at all times. And so rather than replying directly to either of those messages, I, I pose this question instead. Uh, I asked you to compare and contrast the fear felt by those white conservatives and uh, Israeli Jews who oppose the occupation of Palestine, but who don't want a one-state solution because they don't want to be an ethnic minority, and asked you, you know, what policies have arisen out of these two different types of fears? You know, maybe what similarities are there in those uh, policies? And I have a couple of addendum questions. So uh, uh, addendum A, what other policies can you think of that were developed based on fear? And did they create oppression among a group of people? And addendum B, can you think of any policies developed based on fear that did not result in oppression of some sort so keep those comments coming in it's only been you know a day or two since uh, since that last episode posted so i'm not surprised uh, there's not a flood of responses yet but i still have faith that uh, some comments will come in if you have thoughts on that keep the comments coming as always the number to dial 202-999-3991 And now that is going to be it for today. Thanks to everyone for listening. Thanks to those who support the show by becoming a member or making donations of any size at patreon.com slash bestoftheleft. That is absolutely how the program survives. Of course, everyone can support the show just by telling everyone you know about it and leaving us glowing reviews on iTunes and Facebook to help others find the show. You can also help us in our mission to aggregate and amplify the best progressive media by joining up with us on Facebook and Twitter and sharing all of the great content we're putting out there. There, and for details on the show itself, including links to all of the sources and music used for this and every episode. All that information can always be found in the show notes on the blog. So coming to you from far outside the conventional wisdom of Washington, D.C., my name is Jay, and this has been the Best of the Left podcast coming to you every Tuesday and Friday. Thanks entirely to the members and donors to the show from bestofleft.com.